The following sermon was preached to the congregation at Victory Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. We hope it is helpful to you and anyone you choose to share it with. However, we would also encourage you, if you have not already, to find a local New Testament church where you can assemble with fellow believers, hear the word preached, and observe the ordinances given to Christ's church. For more details, you can visit our church's website at victorybaptistkc.org. Again, that's victorybaptistkc.org. Thank you for joining us. Last week, we looked at what is worship, and we gave the basic, kind of the basic contours of worship, what worship is. And we said that worship is, among other things, worship is theological, doxological, sacrificial, beneficial, and eschatological. It's a response to what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. So upon that reminder for last week, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we pray now that as we contemplate worship and the administration of worship under both Old Testaments, under both Old and New Testaments, and particularly this afternoon under the Old Testament, that you would help us to see the significance of everything that went into Old Testament worship and how that will lead us to consider the weightiness and the nature of New Testament worship when we come to consider New Testament worship next week. So Lord, as we look at Old Testament worship this week, we pray that you would bless us, help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So along with those basic contours uh, of worship in general, I think we can say that broadly speaking, in both Old Testament and New Testament eras, worship is theological, doxicological, sacrificial, beneficial, and eschatological. All right, so under the Old Testament and under the New Testament, that's true. It's, it's always a response to what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. I think that's that's pretty much true for both Old and New Testaments. Um, when we look at the term worship, this kind of goes back to last week because last week was introductory. Uh, and maybe I should have said this last week, but I think as we become introduced to Old Testament worship this week, uh, we'll, we'll consider the word worship. The word worship, where does that come from? What does that word mean? Well, uh, the word worship itself derives from the Anglo-Saxon term worth-seep. All right, and it means to ascribe worth. So if you think of worship, uh, if we were to break it down and kind of pronounce it um, according to the two words that it's kind of made up of, it'd be like worth-ship, worth-ship, uh, following that worth-seep Anglo-Saxon term that it comes from. It means to ascribe worth. The Old Testament uses three main words for worth worship. Uh, it uses stacha. Abad and Sharat. Now, all of those words have a similar meaning to one another. They all entail ascribing worth, perhaps demonstrating one's reverence or praise for God in the case of prostration and these bodily acts that are involved in worship under the Old Testament. Um, but these, these three words really describe the same thing. All, uh, all an effort, a desire to ascribe worth to the only one worthy to be praised. And that is God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so this brings our attention to Old Testament worship itself. And so what I want to do here 
at least as I see within the near future, is I want to look at Old Testament worship. Then I want to turn to look at New Testament worship. Now, this is going to be broad surveys of both. So we're going to look at kind of just the nature uh, of Old Testament worship so that we can see it in comparison with and in contrast to New Testament worship next week. So we're going to look at Old Testament worship today. Old Testament worship. What was it like? What was Old Testament worship like? What was its purpose? What was it for? What was its significance? And so we're going to look at a few different things here. We're going to have four points. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the circumstance of Old Testament worship. So that's number one, the circumstance of Old Testament worship. Secondly, we're going to look at the confinement of Old Testament worship, the confinement of Old Testament worship. Thirdly, we'll look at the complexity of Old Testament worship, the complexity of Old Testament worship. And then fourth, we'll look at the anticipation of Old Testament worship, the old, the anticipation of Old Testament worship. So first, the circumstance, the circumstance of Old Testament worship. And probably when I say Old Testament worship, all sorts of imagery comes to your mind. Animal sacrifices, the temple in Jerusalem, perhaps the tabernacle before the temple in the case of the wilderness wandering, and so forth. All sorts of imagery comes to your mind because the Bible describes in vivid detail what Old Testament worship was like. But I think in a very big way, Old Testament worship begins with Abraham. It really begins with Abraham. And of course, there's a, a pretext to Abraham. And there's other things that we could survey and look at that kind of anticipate what comes along with Abraham and then finally Moses. But formally, Old Testament worship really starts with Abraham. And then it enters into a critical step in development at the time of Moses. All right, so it begins in Abraham and it enters a, a kind of critical development at the time of Moses. So God calls Abram out of his pagan context when Abraham was Abram, calls him out of his pagan context. He says back in Genesis 3 or Genesis 12, rather, the first encounter uh, between God and Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house, God tells Abraham. And then he gives him promises, land, nationality, and an eventual global blessing upon all the families of the earth at the end of that passage. Alan Ross, who wrote a handy book on worship, says that this revelation from God made Abraham realize that there is only one sovereign God and therefore only one way to worship. Accordingly, God called him to leave his old way of life and introduce the true faith to the world. End quote. So there's this idea where Abram, for the first time, is being called out of his pagan context. It would have been a massive paradigm shift for Abram at the time. It was a calling out of an idolatrous paganism or an idolatrous heathenism into the truth. All of the sudden, pretty quickly and abruptly. And with the truth, of course, as we looked at last week, with the truth comes a right response to the truth. And so this changes things about not only Abraham's life in general, but also how Abraham understands God, the creator of the universe, and how Abraham responds to God, the creator of the universe. Now, of course, Abraham's theology wouldn't have been as detailed as ours is today. We have much more revelation than he did. 
um, all those years, centuries, millennia ago, but he had the truth. For Abraham, Yahweh was the living God. He was the sovereign God. He was the righteous judge, gracious and faithful. All of those things were demonstrated to Abraham through God's interaction with him. And so Abraham's worship, following his theology, would imitate that, would reflect that in some way. But like Abraham's theology, Abraham's worship was somewhat limited as well. In other words, you don't get in Abraham what you later get in Moses. And you certainly don't get in Abraham or Moses what you get in the New Testament. So in Genesis, we're told that Abraham worshiped through means of building altars. This is one of the, I don't want to say trademarks, but it's one of the defining characteristics of Abraham's interaction, uh, worshipful interaction with God. In Genesis 12, verse 7, we read, after the Lord came to Abraham for the first time, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there, Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Presumably, he would offer sacrifices on these altars that he would build to the Lord. But pagans built altars too, didn't they? Pagans also built altars. These are often called high places in the Old Testament. They would build these altars to their pagan deities. And here Abraham is building an altar as well in the midst of a pagan land. So it was important that Abraham not only build an altar, not only offer sacrifices on the altar, but it was important for him to distinguish the true God from all the false gods as he worshipped him. And to do that, Abraham made a proclamation of the name of Yahweh at these altars. When he builds the altar at Bethel, for example, in Genesis 12.8, we're told that he called on the name of Yahweh there. There were other things that characterized Abraham's worship. Solemn oaths. Tithes. When he tithed to Melchizedek in Genesis 14.20. Intercessory prayers in Genesis 18. Circumcision we see when it's instituted in Genesis 17. Commemorative thanksgiving and even burial. Abraham buries Sarah in Canaan, not in his old land. And that's a signification of Abraham's hope of the promise of God that he would bury Sarah in Canaan and not anywhere else. Moving, moving from Abraham to Moses, there's this crit critical stage of development that occurs at that point, at the time where God calls Moses and where God reveals to Moses the law. God promised Abraham a land and a nation. God's covenant with Moses is further, is a, is a, represents a further development of this promise, a further development toward that promise where the people are equipped to enter the promised land, essentially. If there's going to be a land, there needs to be laws for the land. If there's going to be a, a religious nation, there needs to be laws for the religion. And this is where the Mosaic Covenant really comes in and where the main development occurs is in the people's worship. In the Mosaic Covenant, circumcision remains, sacrifices remain, prayers remain, but all of these things are developed much further. More significance is attached to them. For example, now there would be a specific place around which Israel's worship would center. That wasn't so much the case with Abraham. Now it is. There's this specific place, a uh, specific emblem, really, around which all of Israel's worship would center, which is the tabernacle. 
And there would be specific kinds of sacrifices that the newly ordained Levitical priesthood would be required to offer on behalf of the people. And these sacrifices are several. You have the purification offering, the reparation offering, the burnt offering, the dedication offering, and the peace offering. There were other ceremonial rites in addition to those, like washings, the rite of the red heifer, the ritual of birds. There was tithing and sacrificial giving or free will offerings, what they're called in the Old Testament. All of those things were to take place around the tabernacle and then eventually the temple in Jerusalem. And the tabernacle, then temple, would come to be located exclusively in the land of Canaan and really exclusively in Jerusalem, the only place where ordinary worship could lawfully take place under the Old Testament would be in the land of Canaan. So the circumstance of the Old Testament worship is the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants and their administrations intended to be carried out around the temple and in the land of Canaan. The circumstance of the Old Testament worship was Abraham and Moses and their administrations intended to be carried out around the temple, revolving around the temple, and in the land of Canaan. And that brings us to the confinement of the Old Testament. So that was the circumstance of Old Testament worship. Now let's look at the confinement of Old Testament worship. Some of the confinement you may have been able to pick up on already there under that first point. Old Testament worship was much more confined than what we're used to in the New Testament, under the New Testament. It was ordinarily carried out in a single land, uh, in and around a single building, in relation to a single city, Jerusalem, and according to a very complex and specific calendar that ran year round. Old Testament worship took place in the land of Canaan. And it's centered initially around the tabernacle, but then the Jerusalem temple when Solomon constructs it. Unless the Israelites were exiled, their worship was always tied to the temple. That is to say, under normal circumstances, under ordinary circumstances, Jewish worship or Israelite worship was always tied to the temple. There wasn't a whole lot of flexibility with Old Testament worship. It was rigorous. It was even dangerous. Think of how Zipporah addresses Moses after circumcising her son. She says, surely you are a husband of blood to me. And again, she says that you are a husband of blood in Exodus 4, 25 through 26. That doesn't sound too inviting, does it? Or maybe consider the rigor of performing even a single animal sacrifice, just one, just one animal sacrifice, let alone countless sacrifices in a single day. Now, um, imagine, if you will, for a moment, you have a herd of sheep and you have a herd of goats. And Passover feast is upon us and you are a first century or before Jew living in the land of Canaan. And you're the head of the household. Let's say you're the, you're the dad. And you're tasked to uh, go out back into one of those fields, apprehend one of your lambs, the cleanest one you can find, without blemish. And you are tasked with sacrificing it. You are tasked with sacrificing it. 
Now, imagine the priesthood. That's individual sacrifice uh, that would be performed on Passover. But then there were sacrifices that were performed regularly by the priesthood. Animals, animals upon animals. Blood after blood after blood. What rigorous work. The priest's robes, by the end of their day, would have been covered in blood. So you go to these exhibits and you see, you know, the priests standing there in their white robes and you think, oh, that's really neat. The tabernacle, how neat is that? Or you see an exhibit of the temple or something like that. How neat is that? That's really, that's really cool. That's the cleanest they would have ever been, right? Most of the time, it would have been a very, very dirty business. Old Testament worship did not allow for normal deviations from the temple system. Nor was there a lawfully established place of worship outside the bounds of the promised land. It was to take place only in Canaan. It was confined to outward, visible, and symbolic expressions of worship, like animal sacrifice or grain offerings, something along those lines. Worship didn't only occur on one day out of the week like it does for us now, but also during special days, weeks, and months out of the year, according to a very precise calendar. Old Testament worship was extremely confined, and we could say extremely defined. It consisted largely in external symbols, and though these symbols were to be engaged with the heart of true faith, these were to be carried out by those who truly believed in what these sacrifices pointed to, yet the worship system itself was lawfully sustained by outward appearances which served as picture messages. These were images communicating something, anticipating something. All the symbols and sacrifices were confined as they were to both temple and land in order to depict a certain redemptive reality that up to that point had not fully transpired. It was anticipated, but it had not fully transpired. Old Testament worship was confined. But it was also very complex as we've already seen a little bit, but let's, let's look at the complexity of Old Testament worship. We're going to see some contrast here when we look at New Testament worship because the New Testament and its worship isn't nearly as complex as Old Testament worship was, but let's look at the complexity of Old Testament worship. Old Testament worship was not simple. It was not simple. It was complicated. It was complex. Let's take the Old Testament calendar, for instance. In the Old Testament calendar, there are two seasonal cycles. You have the autumn cycle and the spring cycle. In the spring cycle, we have the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. And then in the autumn cycle, we have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. In each of these days and feasts periods, there are specific requirements to be performed both by the people in general and on behalf of the people by the Levitical priesthood. For example, on the Passover, which took place on the 14th day of the first month at twilight, on that day, every man was supposed to take a blemishless lamb, one year old. Right? Think of the specifics here already. You have to find a lamb in your pasture, that's only one year old. Oh, and by the way, it can't have any defects. It has to be a blemishless lamb. And you can take it from either the sheep or the goats, and it needs to be slaughtered. 
Its blood was to be painted on the doorposts and lintels of each house. The lamb itself was to be cooked by fire. Don't boil it in water because that was not the requirement. The requirement was that either the sheep or the goat be cooked by fire. It's like a roast, right? Um, So it needs to be cooked by fire without water and eaten by the occupying family of the home. None of it is supposed to be left. It cannot, you can't have any leftovers, in other words. You're not keeping leftovers for the next day. There's going to be no reheat. You have to eat this whole thing in one sitting. And that includes the legs, the entrails, everything has to be eaten. Exodus 12, 1 through 28. Very complex, very arduous. The very next day, after Passover, a seven-day festival started called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all bread consumed was to be baked a particular way, that is, without yeast. It was to be unleavened. And and an offering that day was supposed to be made by fire to the Lord, and that was to happen for seven days. That's Leviticus 23, 4-8. Those are just two of the many occasions, feasts and days, that I've already mentioned and some of the intricacies that happened on those days. So you can see how complex it was, how detailed it was, how arduous it was. Another significant day was the Day of Atonement. On the tenth day of the seventh month, a holy convocation or assembly was to afflict their souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, says Leviticus 23, 27. No work was to be performed. Those without an affliction of soul, which is like this humility toward God in performing the ordinance, were to be cut off from His people, verse 29 says. Anyone caught doing any work on that day would be destroyed, says verse 30 of Leviticus 23. Also on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to make atonement for himself, for his family, and for all of Israel by traveling beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood of a goat on and in front of the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Constant labor, blood, and death. Rigorous observation of days, months, and years, along with countless ritualistic practices. The Old Testament worship was a complex worship. So the question becomes, what was it all for? What was its goal? What did Old Testament worship anticipate? What was it moving toward? And that brings us to our fourth point here, the anticipation of Old Testament worship. Old Testament worship anticipated Christ, the completion of His work, and the bringing in of a new world and new worship, a new creation. Following the finished work of Christ, a new era dawned. Old Testament worship testified to Old Testament saints concerning the coming of the Messiah, His mission, and His kingdom. New Testament worship, of course, testifies to the fact that Christ has come. Let's return to Passover for a little bit here. We know each man was required to bring an unblemished lamb from their flock as a sacrifice. And this anticipates the perfect lamb of God, who, of course, without blemish, was offered up before God as our perfect Passover sacrifice. All right, so the Passover 
feast, the Passover sacrifice, anticipated the ultimate Passover sacrifice, which would take place in the sacrifice of Christ. The Apostle Peter makes this connection for us when he says, the precious blood of Christ as as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Referring back to the Levitical requirement. He says that in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. When Christ arrives at the Jordan to be baptized, John the Baptist exclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.19, Christ, the Lamb, was sacrificed. His blood covers us. And judgment, therefore, passes over. And we celebrate. Right? That's what New Testament worship is. It's the celebration of the Passover from a different angle. That is, as those who have been passed over by the wrath of God in virtue of the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as Israel celebrated Passover by eating the sacrificial lamb, we celebrate by eating the Lord's Supper, which Christ likens to His body and blood. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians 11.24, Matthew 26, verses 26-28. through 28. And then he says things like in John 6.55, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He's our true Passover sacrifice. Remember, whenever the, whenever the sheep or the goat was sacrificed, it was to be cooked with fire and consumed. It was to be eaten. All of it. The Lord's Supper is a replica of the fact that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed and that by faith we feast on Him. The Day of Atonement included several elements looking forward to Christ. For example, the scapegoat. The high priest was to place both of his hands upon a living goat, symbolizing the imputation of Israel's sin upon that goat. The goat was then sent outside the camp into the wilderness, thereby symbolizing the expiation of Israel's sin. Israel's sin in this symbol is taken away. It's put on this scapegoat and taken away from them. It is expiated. It is removed from them. Similarly, Our scapegoat, Jesus Christ, bears the sins of His people outside Jerusalem upon the cross. And so Hebrews 13.13 says, Therefore let us go forth to Him outside the camp bearing His reproach. He was the scapegoat who left the camp for us. And He removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. One of the feast days we haven't really considered up to this point is the Feast of the First Fruits. It's the Feast of the First Fruits. On the Feast of the First Fruits, Israel was to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of their harvest to the priest. That comes from Leviticus 23, verse 10. Israel was to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of their harvest to the priest. And then the priest was to wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on their behalf. Verse 11 of Leviticus 23 tells us. This was to happen on the day after the Sabbath. So remember the Jewish Sabbath took place on the seventh day of the week, which to us would be Saturday. 
this feast of the first fruits was to take place on the first day of the week, which to us would be today, be Sunday, would be the Lord's Day. The Christian Sabbath. So the feast of the first fruits anticipated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know this because of how Paul makes the connection in places like 1 Corinthians 15.20. He says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So as the Jews were celebrating the feast of the first fruits on the first day of the week, they thought, you know, Jesus was in the tomb, dead. But as they celebrated the feast of the first fruits on the first day of the week, the true first fruits rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, the same day as the feast of the first fruits. He rose on the Lord's day. He is our first fruits. Imagine for a moment being his disciples. And you're going through this strange limbo situation where you can kind of recall things that the Lord had said, but now he's dead and you really don't know he's coming back. You lack faith and you don't know what's going to happen. In the case of Peter, he feels terrible because he betrayed who had been his best friend. And the feast of the first fruits is taking place. And as the feast of the first fruits is taking place, our Lord raises from the dead and his disciples witness it. Could you imagine all the connections they would have been making between the Old Testament and, and, and the dawn of the new with the resurrection of our Lord on the feast day? It's just phenomenal. This is just uh, uh, one testimony in terms of how the whole Bible is so interrelated. Man couldn't have written this. <laughs> so the Old Testament worship anticipated Christ and it anticipated New Testament worship. We'll look at how the Old Testament anticipated New Testament worship next week or more accurately how New Testament worship fulfills that anticipation. Um, but just by way of conclusion, Old Testament worship was difficult. Um, we flew through some details, and the reason I wanted to kind of hit those details as many as I did is because I wanted, I wanted us all to see and to think about just how complex it really was. Old Testament worship was difficult. It was confined. It was extremely complex. But it had a purpose. That purpose was to anticipate Christ to hold out Christ as the true scapegoat, the Passover lamb, etc. And through New Testament worship, Christ is proclaimed as the fulfillment of all these things. The victorious lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have a glorious Savior and we have a wonderful privilege as New Testament Christians who gather here week in and week out on the Lord's Day to proclaim what our Lord has done. We need to see that. We need to see our situation in front of the backdrop of Old Testament worship so that we can really cultivate an attitude of appreciation for what goes on here every Lord's Day. And we'll continue to do that um, not only next week, but, but as we go on the next few Sundays. So let's go ahead and pray.
Our great God in heaven, hallowed be Your name, for You have set the captives free. You've liberated us from sin and corruption. You have translated us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of Your love through the completion of His work. You have given us new life and You have begun a new world. We pray that as we gather every week to proclaim Christ and His finished work, that we would understand what worship is and what it is proclaiming, what it is saying, not only to the world around us, but what it's saying to us and how You minister to us through what You have ordained and have commanded us to do in Christian worship. Lord, we pray that You would get the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.